Hello everyone, welcome back to our podcast. We're so glad that you can join us. My name's Cameron. We usually are joined by Ken uh, in Launceston. I'm not actually in Launceston at the moment. I'm up visiting Locke and we're recording at the same mic, which is a first in over one year of recording these podcasts. And Ken is not available because he's looking after my children. And that makes him very unavailable if I if I know my children well at all. Um, he'll be busy with bedtimes. So uh, Ken's not with us. Well, I'm Luke, and my thoughts and prayers are with Ken this evening. <laughs> and I'm Lachlan. It's good to have Cam here for this for this recording. Yeah, so we're, we're jumping into a discussion of God's everlasting covenant. That's the, at least the name used by the lesson. That title itself is almost certain to come up into into some of the debate that we have. It's not a debate. Some of the discussion that we have uh, following. It's the, God's covenant with abram and then abraham and this covenant is stated several times in several different ways and uh, we might talk a little bit about uh, some of those differences as we go through but shall we um, start Locke? do you want to read the sort of circumstance and statement of the covenant in genesis 15 it's around verse 18 i think yeah, so Genesis 15 comes in the story of Abram after Abram has left his father's country. Um, Abram and Lot have traveled. Abram has rescued Lot. Um, Abram has already been blessed by Melchizedek, that really interesting character in the Old Testament who receives almost no screen time, so to speak. Who's identified as a type of Christ, isn't he, in the New Testament? Yes. One of the New Testament writers. A really unusual character described as a, as a king-priest. Or a priest king. Anyway, after that story in Genesis 15, um, God appears to Abram in a vision. Uh, and there's a number of different things that are said. And starting from verse 12 of Genesis 15. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And these pieces are, are the halves separated of a heifer, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon, which was mentioned up in, in verses 8 and 9. An unusual addition, you would think, towards a, a, an occasion of, of worship or solemnity. I've, I've yet to see an Adventist service um, you know, constructed around the presence of two halves of a cow and two halves of a goat. Yes, yes. These all these animals uh, at God's command in verse ten were were cut in half and and laid each other uh, laid over against the other each half. Um, oh, sorry, the birds did not get cut in half. Um, uh. Apparently, but the key word coming here. So the flaming, the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch passed between these pieces. That's verse seventeen, and in verse eighteen. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, 
the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Right. So that, that, the nature of the covenant is actually remarkably similar to a hypothetical that I posed to Ken, just to make sure last episode that I was understanding him correctly, contrasting covenant with contract. Um, if we purchase real estate, then the buyer and the seller reach an agreement through negotiation and they both sign a contract. Yeah. But a covenant is the giving of land. In that, in that context. And here in this covenant to Abram, God is giving exactly that kind of promise. This is, this yeah. is a, an interesting covenant in that it, it doesn't, it's not conditional in any way, or it doesn't even have two parts. It just is. God will do this. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's, it's also a very unusual covenant to be identified as an everlasting covenant. What um, the, the lesson is trying to access a, a deeper, perhaps spiritual truth, but but this covenant is that the dis, the actual physical descendants of Abraham will inhabit a certain part of the earth. I'm, I'm, we will need to get onto this as our discussion progresses. But in what sense is is that an everlasting covenant? You know, our covenant with Noah that we discussed last week, I, I see much more resonance with as an everlasting covenant. It's mm. it seems to be much more general mm. in its because principles. Because it's universal. And it's universal. This is very specific to a particular time, particular people. And as we noted in last week's discussion, the Israelites did not believe that theirs was the only story of God's involvement. So the Abrahamic covenant is an account of his dealing with them. But obviously, like the story of Melchizedek shows that there were people worshipping God that were not part of Abraham's household. Yes, Yes, indeed. The other thing I find really interesting about this one is that the the region given is from the river of Egypt, which would be the Nile, to the Euphrates, mm. which is a huge area. That's a lot. The Euphrates goes through the middle of modern-day Iraq. It's a huge area that the Israelites at no point in their history ever completely controlled and there are parts of it in which they never even lived in, uh, except maybe in their exile. This is perhaps a bit off-topic, Luke, but th- there are other, uh, in inverted commas, errors of that of that sort. There's a lot of reference in the books to the 12 tribes of Israel in, in the Old Testament. But where, where the 12 tribes are listed, they are not always the same 12, because there were not 12, there were 13. Because Joseph's didn't get a tribe, he got two, he got Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Levites are sometimes excluded from the list because mm. they had priestly duties. And sometimes it's a it's a different tribe. That and 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 as tribal identities, many of them are not referred to ever again after the judges. Mm. And in fact in the book of Judges you find out that some of them are, are already nearly obliterated, often yeah. by infighting between the twelve tribes. And you know, in what sense is the is, I know that Abraham's covenant is long. We're not yet up to twelve tribes, but but the way the story is written is complicated when you actually try and work out what what happened. Well, uh, exactly, Cam. And to your point, Luke, about it being a very vast region, even without knowledge of the geography, you could get that sense by the by the magnitude of the list of mm. the people who inhabit the land at yes. this point in time in Genesis fifteen when God gives the it's it's. A bunch of, of nations. 
So it does it does give the impression of a fairly large piece of land. Yeah. And this this particular reading is this is not one of the statements of the covenant that we turn to often. There are I think three times, there multiple times Abraham God God makes a covenant with with Abraham. And it's not they happen at different times in his life and this is before he's been had his name changed by God. And uh this one has that you know um sort of quite difficult to understand context of of the covenant being made while while a flame god's spirit is walking between the halves of of two you know dismembered animals yes not just two animals it's heaps of animals three five five or six animals it's a number three halved and then two birds so uh, but i've heard it said and I, i don't know enough to verify this but but that uh, where very serious agreements were made, treaties between nations and, and things like that, that was a, a sort of cultural practice, mm. was, was to do this. And, and, you know, a lot of traditions are meaningful because the people participating in them bring meaning to it. All the parties concerned agree that if you, if you, if you enact this agreement by walking between the halves of two animals, that makes it very serious. Mm-hmm. And it is then serious because both parties impart to it some significance. I, I don't really suppose that that God required the dead animals, but it may be that Abraham required the dead animals in order... God was accessing perhaps some cultural idiom to explain to Abraham what's going on. That's a really interesting thing to think about because God... It, it, verses 7, 8, and 9 particularly eight, is really interesting. And I think you might be right, Cam, because in seven, God says to Abraham, I am God who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. And then Abraham asks for proof or surety or guarantee or something like that. He doesn't, God actually tells it to him. This is what this, I'm God and I'm going to give you this land. And Abraham says, but how, do, how, how will I know? And God says, okay. Bring the animals, cut them in half, we'll do it this way. And this will give you confidence that I am yeah. telling the truth. I, I really like that, Luke. Uh, I, I mean, there's a lot in there. It, it speaks of a God who comes and meets his people where they're at. And that is a theme which resonates throughout the entire Bible extremely richly. And of course, is, is, it's ultimately fulfilled in the incarnation event itself. But there is one fly in the ointment which I only discovered this morning. And it, it forces us to go back for a moment to the story of Noah, which was last week's episode. Mm. But in the story of Noah, the, the, we, we did a lot of discussion about the covenant after the flood that God makes with Noah. And, and it seems with, with all of humanity. But in the preamble to that episode of the story, there's a weird detail. This is Genesis 8, starting in verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So this is after they've come out of the ark, after the flood. And when the Lord smelt the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again strike down every living creature. The wording seems to imply that the covenant God comes with is somehow in response to or even inspired by it's an outpouring of it's, it's a reaction to the smell of the burnt offering and mm. if you move away a little bit from the the sort of spiritualization of some of our, our pictures of some of these offerings this is this is needless destruction of animal life 
It's not a nice smell, I'd imagine. Yeah. I, I'm only, I mean, I'm, I'm being a little bit in jest with, well, with exaggerating it, but I, I see there being a vague connection here because the, the story we've just read with Abraham has the covenant being connected to the, the, the sacrificial death of some animals. And that actually was a feature in Genesis 8 and 9 that we didn't talk about last week. You know, it's interesting, Locke, because later on, God says, and I I hope this is, I think it's in one of the minor prophets, in, in reference to people sacrificing their children. Um, maybe I'm misreading this, but I, I, if, I, if it's only just come to me or I would have done the research. But isn't there some statement in, in Scripture of God saying to people, no, look, I don't need you to sacrifice your children. A, a goat is fine. In other words, the sacrificial system is, is not so much God hungry for more things to be killed, but him saying, look, this is quite enough. Do this much and just stop there. Mm. That's, that's, that's all. In other words, it's a, it's a statement of restraint. That doesn't solve the problem because it suggests that God's doing pursuing a, a non-optimal outcome simply because it, it meets some compromise with this, this created being. But if, if God... Uh, if, if someone grew up in a culture where it was absolutely ingrained on them that... If, if you spoke to someone, if you gave something to someone and they didn't thank you, you were expected to kick them in the shins. Let's imagine a, an odd culture of this sort. So, uh, And then you, you go over there and you find that, that well-meaning people are spending all the time running around kicking each other in the shins. We, we could say that's a disproportionate response as we look on it. You know, if someone fails to thank you, that's no cause for you to kick them in the shins. But if that's the accepted cultural expectation hmm. can would you regard someone who was going about doing shin kicking to be immoral well n- no they're doing their best to be moral within the within what they know hmm. so and if you traveled to that country and you wanted to appear like someone upholding the standards of the society uh and everyone expected you to go about kicking shins whenever anyone failed to thank you if, if you didn't participate in the shin kicking you could be accused of being immoral yeah, and well, exactly. letting standards slip. Oh, Ken's just joined us. Ken's going to be very much wondering where this analogy is going right now. So does God have this problem? In other words, uh, does God encounter a people with some really weird moral concepts? <laughs> and, and does he just have to play that game a little bit because of the people he's dealing with? And if, if we allow that, then we are placing... We're placing a fair amount of uh, we're casting a cloud on on how, how how to what degree we can just simply take the Bible as it reads. Um, look, I'm sorry I was late. Um, we have the delight and pleasure of having three uh, uh, active young boys, and we've just been uh, in the cubby right. uh, watching open season, yeah. and I got all wrapped up in the movie and completely forgot about coming <laughs> That's here. Okay. We weren't. We weren't necessarily expecting you to be able to make it, Ken. We're all very impressed, Ken. When Cam said that you were looking after his kids, we all went, oh, no, he's done for the night. <laughs> There's no <laughs> way he'll make it. We've been having an absolute ball. Chocolate spiders. Yeah, double espressos. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, English muffin pizzas. Oh, good. Anyway, look, sorry to interrupt the, the, the flow of thought. Yeah, no, that's all right. Um, we'll hand back over to Luke. Cam... I, I have to admit that I find, from my modern perspective, as somebody whose only interaction with the death of animals 
tends to be a, a nice plastic wrapped neat distance um i find the idea that god requires sacrifice because of the culture of the people that he was the culture and the understanding of the people that he was dealing with um and for their benefit and their understanding and their as we saw with this story in genesis 15 for their um reassurance because they found it significant and meaningful is why god does it i find that um much more palatable, much easier to accept than the idea that, as you said, Lachlan, there's something, there's something inherently attractive to the creator God in the smell of burnt meat that would make him decide, if not change his mind, but at least set his mind to not destroy humanity again. You know? Because that doesn't make any sense to me. Which is not to say that I discount the possibility there are many things in the world that don't make sense to me and plainly exist and this might be one of them but i i find it a struggle mm. he was an he was an australian luke he loved the smell of a good barbie <laughs> <laughs> that's why he walked through as a yeah. flame well, between the carcasses one of our favorite songs that we listen to lock is the idea of north one about noah's ark have you heard that yes yeah which which involves a a hen waiting to be rescued from the flood. And the hen's praying to God continuously, saying, help me. And all these animals keep on interrupting the hen, offering rides a lift over to the ark. And the hen's saying, no, no, God's going to rescue me. And, um, you know, suddenly there's a roaring and a rumble. It must be God who's calling out to me, the hen cries. Uh, and a bolt of lightning descends from this storm cloud and cooks the hen. And um, the, hen's, uh, the, hen, the hen is completely... Bewildered. Well, yes, the spirit of this hen, uh, bewildered by the shocking act, rises to heaven and asks the good Lord how this could all be. And he says, uh, Defoul, you must repent. Those creatures were all heaven sent to send uh, to save you from the savage rising sea. And you, you imagine that this is the end of the song because the moral's been told that that uh, you know that the, the hen is praying for some something spectacularly divine and and ignores the help that God's sending it. But it's not the end of the song. The last verse is that uh, Noah's on the boat and asks his wife, uh, you know, what is it that we can feast, that we can feast on while at sea? Uh, and his lovely wife said, Don't despair. Our Lord and Saviour has prepared a crispy roasted chicken for our tea. And that's the, <laughs> that's the, the finale is that uh, this has all been... The inference is it's been orchestrated for, for Noah and his family to feast on. Which is a bit of a worry. I'm not sure that my contribution so far has been uh, worth me joining, um, suggesting God was a good Australian enjoying the smell of a barbecue, because I, I, I don't even know that I'm particularly satisfied with the uh, suggestion that, well, God just tolerates. Uh, well, not even that he tolerates, but that he you know, take some uh, measure of satisfaction uh, in cultural expressions that involve the destruction of his creation. He doesn't, because in, in Genesis 9, he he says, well, while he says that you're allowed to go and kill animals for food, he, in the next breath he says, but I will I'll hold you to account for every drop of blood. Mm. So there's obviously something about this that he's not comfortable with. Yeah, but, but then you go into numbers uh, and... Uh, well, not just numbers in Leviticus, all, all of the all of the burnt offerings. All of, I mean, this this these religious ceremonies were bloody processes. 
Um, and I, it's, I've just wondered about it, and they're all the different sorts of offerings. Now, now's not the time, no doubt, to get into offerings, but um, wave offerings and elevation offerings and um, all sorts of other different offerings, multiple bulls, and um, I don't know. I, I, I struggle with it. Um, but perhaps I'm too sensitive. I, I don't know. Well, for all of us who are a bit sensitive about this, it it doesn't resolve it, but maybe it gives us an excuse to move on from it, leaving it unresolved for the listeners to ponder. Um, I just counted. I, I'd invite our listeners, if they have questions, to chop a cow in two and a goat in two and a, a few birds and to spread them out and to pray. Mm. Uh, maybe this is too facetious. Maybe the joke may not be in good taste. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, so we started here in Genesis 15 because it is the first covenant, hmm. the first time that word is used in the story of Abram. But I just counted in Genesis 15 that we read, the word covenant, I think, is used twice. In Genesis 17, the word covenant is used 11 times. So we should at least, we should at least go and look. And by my count, no animals are killed in the, the 11-fold covenant emphasis of Genesis 17. Well, no animals... Oh, let, let's be clear about this as well. No animals are killed in the covenant in Genesis 15 either. The sacrifice takes place before the covenant and is done by Abraham on God's instructions at Abraham's request. He says, tell me what to do so that I know what you're saying is true. And God then mm. gives him the instruction to sacrifice. It's not part of the covenant. It's strongly implied by the story that it's not essential. That it's not essential for God. Well, it's not essential for the covenant. If Abraham had not said yeah. what he says in chapter 8, would he have had to sacrifice the animals? Well, as I say, I, I, I don't know enough, Luke, about the... I mean, I think there is probably some, something in there about, you know, some scholarship on, on the, the, the rituals and the processes of some of these Old Testament cultures. Um, you know, I guess the question is, um, to what extent... And then certainly you're implying that to, in the mind of Abraham the the all of this ritual stuff about about the animal carcasses is is helping him feel some confidence well i i i I'm, i wouldn't presume to know anything about the mind of abram that just seems to be what the story is saying mm -hmm. in the it, it, abraham asks god for assurances that what god has told him is true and in response to that god instructs him to make the sacrifices that's the sequence of events and then after the sacrifices are made god comes to Abraham, and and interesting, uh, we haven't even talked about this as well. After the sun has gone down, terror and great darkness fell on Abram, and the covenant was made in a state of terror and darkness. But yes, the covenant then comes well after the sacrifices. Abraham makes the sacrifices. He keeps the the pre predator birds off them for the rest of the day until night falls. And then he falls into this, this uh, terrified state, and then the covenant is made. Mm. And so it's it's not it's not a it's not a quick or simple process. There's lots of steps, yeah. and it takes a long time. You know, I've just noticed something there that deserves a, a mention, but I don't think that it's well formed enough to really be be fruitful in conversation at this point. At the start of Genesis, the world was dark. And covered by waters. In the story of the flood, there was an undoing of creation in the waters sense, and then a covenant. Mm -hmm. In the story of Abram in Genesis 15, there's the return to darkness, and then a covenant. 
That's interesting. Well, that's an interesting thought. Indeed, um, uh, one of the interesting things is if you have a look at the, the covenant or what happened when uh, the floodwaters drew back in Genesis 8, uh, God's wind blows. Um, and it's in the it's the very same thing that happens when God um, blows over the the chaos mm. uh, in Genesis one verse two I think um, and and uh, so there you have the waters and here you have uh, the darkness that was part of the chaos and now uh, this covenant in darkness here look can I uh, you you wanted to move on to Genesis chapter seventeen and and I thought I'd just share a I'd do a name drop as an introduction to uh, Genesis chapter 17. Um, one of my good friends is a trombonist. Um, uh, one of my good friends, other than you, Lachlan, um, is a trombonist who played plays in the uh, wind orchestra that I used to play in. And uh, Carl Dienick is his name. Uh, he's um, uh, a pastor at a reformed church here in Launceston and um, did his PhD through the um, reformed Theological Seminary in Geelong, um, and his PhD uh, was on circumcision. So, uh, of course, whenever you ever, ever you tell anybody, and you men will have experienced this in ways that I haven't and perhaps never will, um, uh, people find out you've done a PhD or doing a PhD, and they always want to know, well, what's it about? Um, so, of course, uh, how do you say, uh, well, <laughs> it's about circumcision uh, without people uh, immediately trying to change the topic of conversation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So here we are into Genesis 17 without changing the topic of conversation. That's right. I was, rem- I was actually startled to see the, the, the word count get to 11 instances of the word covenant here in this chapter. Mm. And, and, you know, picking, picking, um, picking up at verse 9, for example, where one of these instances comes. And God said to Abraham, so this is also, I think, the story of when his name is changed. Yes, in verse 5 of, of chapter 17, God changes Abram's name to Abraham. And in verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So that that is the covenant mm. of chapter seventeen. It's a somewhat different covenant, it seems to me, to that of of chapter fifteen, which was about land. Well, true enough, um, uh, but it's interesting because uh, yes, it says that in verse nine and verse ten, uh, uh, but then in verse eleven, uh, there's some clarification. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Which brings me back to my highly contested point from last week, which is that there are only three things identified as the sign of a covenant. And this is one mm. of them. Mm. And what the other one is the Sabbath. And the third one is the rainbow. The rainbow. Well, would you, I mean, having read this now, Cam, would you classify mm. the circumcision in this as the sign of the covenant? Well, that's what it says. And I believe what the Bible says, Luke. <laughs> Well, I've been put in my place. I mean, well, thank you for yeah. listening, everyone. Good evening, and uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs> but but, but it, it is a good point that you raise, Luke, because while I pointed out that in verse 11, uh, it is clear that in verse 9 and 10, he says, this is my covenant, that you will be circumcised. And yeah. indeed, thereafter, 
in verse 13 and 14, he says, my covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Um, uh, uh, this is my covenant. You, you, look, you can believe that bit of the Bible, uh, what it says, and I'll believe the other bit of the Bible of what it says. To, to elaborate <laughs> on the concept, Cam, because it, it, is, it is an interesting one that's a little bit more... Uh, a little bit more um, complex than we are pretending. Um, the the other signs of the covenant, the rainbow and the Sabbath, are both things that God does. They they exist regardless of any human action. This is the sign of the covenant that is required of the covenantee, which is unique in that the other covenants that we've seen don't have any requirements mm. of this nature. And it's interesting that it should be the sign of the covenant, and then it should be it should be put on the recipients of the covenant to uphold the sign. There's no there's no requirement on mankind to maintain the rainbow. Yeah. I mean, you would if for it to be consistent, Luke, with the rainbow one, you would think that it should say, "And God said to Abram, all of your male offspring will shall be born circumcised miraculously." Right. I mean, the Sabbath is an interesting one because circumcision is is an event. Uh, you know, um, they circumcised it eight days, didn't they? I think so. Um, and uh, but that that happened once. The Sabbath is something provided by God, but it's also something that is sort of a weekly. The ob- observation of the Sabbath mm. is is something that we do. So but, it's certainly that the different signs have a very different. They belong to different categories. Yeah. I guess is the point that you're saying, Luke. Correct. Yeah, they do. They. I think they do all belong to different categories. Because cor- correct me if I'm wrong as well with the Sabbath, but there is no. The covenant does not involve a, a requirement of the observation of the Sabbath. The Sabbath exists regardless of whether or not people observe it. And the covenant exists regardless of whether or not people observe the Sabbath. Well, mm. I am just As doing it's written a concordance search now. Genesis. But what is the covenant that he's talking about here? I mean, that's a, this is my covenant, uh, that you will be circumcised. Well, that's not much of a covenant. Well, it's in it's in it's in chapter it's in verse eight. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was thinking you're you're um you taught us well, Ken, that a covenant is a unilateral agreement. Here, it seems if this is indeed a unilateral declaration by God saying, "Here is my covenant: you shall circumcise your offspring." Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a that's a different kind of unilateral, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's it's imposed. Um, I mean, of course, a a unilateral covenant can nonetheless be conditional. Yeah. Um. Uh, but uh, putting that to one side, it's uh, yeah, okay. It's in verse eight. Okay, mm. uh, I found the part Luke that talks about Sabbath, uh, yes, as in on. I found the verse where the Sabbath is identified as the sign of a covenant, which is in Exodus thirty-one. Lovely. And uh, God says to Moses, "Tell the Israelites above all, keep my Sabbaths plural, um, the sign between me and you, generation after generation, to keep the knowledge alive that I am the God who makes you holy." Isn't that an interesting? There's. The yeah. Sabbath doesn't make us holy. It is to remember God who makes us holy. Mm. That's a There's a sermon in that, actually. Um, keep the Sabbath that's holy to you. So it's a sign of the uh, relationship or the sign of the covenant between God and his people. The observation of the Sabbath is the sign. Mm. So actually, it is, it is similar then to circumcision. Yeah. Observe Sabbath keeping down through the generations as a standing covenant. It's a mm. fixed sign between me and the Israelites. Do you know what? I, I find myself thinking that the discussion that we're currently having, trying to understand circumcision as a covenant, must be a little bit reminiscent of what, what we read of in Acts, 
where the early Christian church was struggling with exactly this. Um, mm. To what extent? And and here we have to bring in we have to bring in the lessons title, which which claimed uh, that in some sense this story of Abraham and his and his walk with God establishes an everlasting covenant. You know, in the book of Acts, they do famously decide that circumcision is not required of the converts. And it is the sign of that covenant. But that is the covenant about the land of Canaan, specifically. Well, that is the Abrahamic covenant. Hmm. And what, what does the land of Canaan have to do with, with Christians in Acts? I think is what, is what their, their logic is. Hmm. Yeah, depending which denomination you believe or belong to, uh, Luke, some Christians maintain that the land of Israel has a very pivotal role. Well, And you could be excused, if, if the Abrahamic covenant is to be identified as the everlasting covenant, then you, you could see why, why they would come to that conclusion. Well, I, I hope that they are making sure they're all circumcised then. Well, I, they probably do, I don't know. Um, well, I think the part that is going to be everlasting is the, is the bit, the sort of very subtle messianic sort of addition that gets often tagged on the end when God is talking to Abraham. Um, he says, uh, and through you all nations will be blessed. And I, I think that's the sort of bit that's sort of identified as everlasting. What they mean is that Christ's, Christ as the Messiah mm. is, a, is, a, is, a, is a universal, made a universal and, and everlasting you know, impact on the world. And, and it, it changed the terms on which we relate to God or in some significant way. It had significance. And that's everlasting. But that's, that's, it's, a, it's very difficult to start from the Abrahamic covenant as a whole and say it's everlasting and then say, well, actually, it's everlasting except for nearly ever, all of it. Um, so uh, let me, I've just done a quick word search. Um, let me jump to the defense of the lesson pamphlet. In verse 7 of Genesis 17, it does use the word everlasting covenant. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. That's verse 7. <laughs> so is, is the idea then in the context of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, 15 or 17? In Acts, the Jerusalem Council. Are, are what we try, is what we're trying to say that maybe the Abrahamic covenant is an everlasting covenant, but it is not universal and that there are other ways that people can access god so that could be true because here is where the word search um which came so quickly to the defense of the sabbath school pamphlet now um unfortunately turns against it because genesis 9 verse 16 is the first use of the phrase everlasting covenant when the rainbow is in the clouds i will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh. So the phrase is equally valid in its application to Noah, but the covenant is clearly more universal in the Noah story. This covenant, this covenant with Abram and with Ab Abraham in 15 and 17 is clearly a covenant with Abraham and his offspring, whereas there were no caveats. It's all flesh in Genesis 9 verse 16. So, so it is perhaps really possible that they're both everlasting and that the real quibble is, is not the duration of, of applicability, but, but the, the, I guess, the extent of relevance 
Um, and, you know, could it be that the Axe Council... Cam, you pointed out last week in our mm. episode this remarkable observation that the Jerusalem Council in the Book of Acts, which I identify as being one of the most... one of the pinnacle um, focus points of the Book of Acts, because the the threefold kind of criteria that they want to impose is actually said at least twice in the narrative because it's told when the Jerusalem Council reaches the agreement. And then in the in the book of Acts, it's it's also repeated a few verses later when the story says that this verdict was then read out among the churches. So it receives a, a fairly substantial emphasis in the text. And of course, it focuses on on the blood in the flesh, in particular with, with eating meat. Much more so than on, well, famously, while, while completely omitting circumcision, which mm. was the issue in the first place. So in Acts, there is a, the Jerusalem Council at least, does indeed identify a... They more or less affirm a pre-existing covenant. They say the covenant with Noah, mm. God's, already, God's already solved this question. Uh, he has a covenant mm. with the Gentiles. So they don't nullify. They don't. They don't claim that God's covenant with Abraham is nullified. It, they're happy to see it as everlasting. They are just not willing to go as far as require it to be the guiding principle of God's ongoing relationship with the Gentiles. Yeah, the the issue here about God, um, what what Abraham, the covenant with Abraham is. I I said earlier that there's often in some statements of the covenant and it's not in all of them there's often a phrase at the end and through you all nations will be blessed and i've i made comments to the effect that this is a fairly small part for us to for us to treat it as being the significant thing i'm not so sure uh that i'm right when when the story is told it is really absolutely abundantly clear in the story that all of abram's children all of Abraham's children received the blessing of becoming a great nation. Um, even Lot's children, with very questionable questionable origins, became great nations. Um, Ishmael did. Mm. Esau did. Uh, so, so uh, this blessing about becoming a great nation is, is not actually the part, even though that is the body of the text when you when you read the blessing of Abraham. It's it's not the distinguishing feature that passes to the Israelites because the the inheriting a, a land and becoming a great nation he, heaps of people did that and there's a there's a really interesting play a way this plays out in the story of Isaac and Esau uh, where Esau Isaac um, Jacob and Esau where Jacob steals Esau's blessing and the blessing is that you'll be rich and powerful and rule over lots of people and then that's that's when Isaac is deceived and, and when he realizes that he's deceived on a separate occasion before Jacob leaves to run away, Jake, um, Isaac blesses Jacob again with the blessing of Abraham. Yeah, about the many descendants that will fill the earth. Yeah, and it's the blessing of Abraham. But so, so in other words, Jacob didn't need to steal Esau's blessing because Isaac actually had two blessings, one for Esau and one for Jacob. And the one that Jacob gets is the one... This identified as the blessing of Abraham. And when God visits him in the dream, God reaffirms the covenant with Abraham and clearly says at the end of it, and through you all nations will be blessed. So it, it does seem that that where we look at this covenant and it, it, it is in the context of the nation of Israel uh, and we look at this covenant, there are parts of that that are not specific to the nation of Israel. 
the Edomites and the Moabites, well, not the Moabites, but the Edomites and the and the um, Ishmaelite, the sons of Ishmael, and all these people became great nations. That's not the part of the blessing that was uh, distinctive. For the, the part that was distinctive for the Israelites was that through them all the world would be blessed. So maybe we are right to sort of place emphasis on that part of the Abrahamic blessing as being a, a very core feature, even though it's only listed in some of the statements and it's only ever a minority of the text. I really like that. There's something interesting here as well. Um, Genesis 17, of course, is after the birth of Ishmael. Um, and the covenant that we are discussing is immediately preceding the story that's quite well known to, I think, all of us as, a, as part of the children's story, the Sabbath school education, all the rest of it, which is um, Abraham and Sarah being being granted, essentially, a son. Um, and it's really interesting to look at um, verses 17 to 21 in in the light of this covenant, because what the covenant says um, is, I will give to you your offspring after you the land where you're troubling all the land of Canaan for everlasting possession. Well, your offspring um, actually includes Ishmael. And Luke, I've got some homework for our listeners. We we are really we identify the Abraham Isaac Jacob story as a story of God picking favorites. That this one's going to get the blessing and this one won't. And the way the story is told is really, I think, fairly obviously told in a way that that says the opposite story, that says to the Israelites, you cannot claim that you exclusively alone are the recipients of God's blessing. If you read the story of, for instance, um, Abraham sacrificing Isaac or you know, being willing to sacrifice Isaac, compare that with the preceding story about Hagar and Ishmael fleeing into the desert and, and ask yourself, which is the account that is designed to be more emotively compelling? Where, where are our sympathies being drawn? The account of Abraham and, and Isaac is, is very matter-of-fact. And then Abraham did this, and then he did this, and then Isaac said this, and then Abraham said this. And, mm. and it's just a statement of what happened. If you read the story of Hagar and Ishmael, it's full of emotion and Hagar is weeping and, and the child is dying and they're in the desert and that she says she puts the child under a bush and walks away because she cannot bear to see her son die. And even while I'm saying this, I'm getting tingles because it's a, it's a horrific picture mm. and it's told in a way that absolutely, deliberately is designed to draw your sympathy to the character of Ishmael who's treated very poorly in the story and, and who God intervenes miraculously just mm. like he intervenes for Isaac. Yes. Let's look at how, how God treats Ishmael in Genesis 17, because it's really, really interesting. Um, and interesting how Abraham treats him as well uh, in this context. Yeah. Because God says, I will give Sarah a son. He, uh, immediately after this, con- this, this covenant, he says, I will give Sarah a son. Um, she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Um, yeah. And then Abraham finds this uh, very implausible. Um, and then in, in verse 18, Abraham says, God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. It, it, it's, yeah. I'm not, I may not be understanding this, this sentence correctly, but that sounds like a plea for Ishmael's life. That Abraham's thinking, well, if I'm going to have another son, that means this one has to die so he's not a threat. And, and then immediately following that, and, and, and he doesn't want that. He's looking after Ishmael. Yeah. Uh, all right. Then immediately following that, God says, no, Sarah's going to have a son. 
and I'll establish my covenant with him, and that's all good. But as for Ishmael, in verse 20, I have heard you. I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He will become the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. And then, another very interesting point, 25, Ishmael is circumcised as well. I hadn't ever picked up that detail, Luke. Thank you. But it's, it's very clear the way the story is told is that the, is that the children of Isaac cannot assume to be the sole recipients of God's blessing. God intervenes in miraculous ways for Ishmael. If you read the mm. story of Jacob and Esau, we identify Esau as being very morally deficient. There is only one criticism right. made indirectly of Esau in the text, which is that he is impulsive. And you compare that to the pages and pages of text devoted to Jacob's scheming deliberate. He, Jacob mm. is a deliberate deceiver on multiple occasions. Mm. And God, when you get to the end of the story, at the start of the story, um, after his blessings being stolen, Esau's told, I'm sorry, God has no more blessings left over for you. You're just going to be wandering around the place. And when you get to the end of the story, you find that that's wrong. God's mm. had heaps of blessings for him. Mm. And Esau shows himself to be a, a person of great moral um, fortitude. He's, he's not a baddie in the story. And if you, if you read the two stories... With a, and, and you didn't know, mm-hmm. you didn't bring to your preconceptions, you would have to say, Esau receives God's blood. God intervenes for Esau. And then you go further on into the story of Joseph where brothers competing for their father's blessing mm-hmm. is, is transparently like a really bad thing. So, so when it comes to the Abrahamic covenant, um, the Israelites were admonished in the way the story is written. It's very obviously the intent of the author to caution them against feeling too exclusive and mm. too superior about well, receiving God's God's being a recipient of God's covenant because that covenant is extended to Abraham. The the distinguishing feature of the nation of Israel is not a special blessing; it is a special job. Well, we've talked about this, Cam. <coughs> we've talked about this in the context of one of the other signs of covenants you've talked about: the Sabbath. You know, as as Adventist community, as as Adventist Christians, it is so easy, isn't it, for us to feel entitled and to pat ourselves on the back about our special res- we know we know all of god's truth yeah we, fo- we follow all his law exactly and the sabbath is is a is a symbol of our specialness yeah in in a in a, in a self-righteous sense and it's so easy to feel like we are therefore the special recipients of god's favor or god's truth or god's blessing and i think we need to we need to serve ourselves exactly the same admonition yeah. god only ever blesses communities in order that they can pass that blessing on to the world. Hmm. We read that in Isaiah last season on this podcast. We read that over and over again. The Minor Prophets, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the teaching of Jesus resounds with this key theme. No one is blessed by God for their, in order that they might be special and exclusive and, um, and, and somehow benefit themselves to the exclusion of others. People are only ever blessed by God in order mm. that they can pass that on and become agents in God's mission in the world. And, and uh, we're getting off the story of Abraham, but um, maybe we should deal with this later. The, the change of Jacob's name to Israel is significant in this context, that, that his struggle, mm. it, the inference is he's, he struggles with God, is what the, the name yeah. is. That's, that's in contrast to struggling with your brothers. 
well, in, in exactly. the story. So, so you are not to compete for God's blessing anymore. You want a blessing? You go straight to God and you talk to God about it, but, but you do not need to establish any sense of superiority over other people to do so. You, you are not to strive with, with other people. You have to date, or to this time in the podcast anyway, uh, focused only on uh, Isaac and Ishmael. Of course, Abraham had other children. Yes. Um, not just Isaac and Ishmael. Uh, he had uh, a wife, Keturah, who bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Ken, do you know that there's a Jewish tradition that that his his wife, his second wife, after Sarah died, uh, was Hagar? Uh, I didn't know that. Under a different name, and and okay. it's not stated clearly, but there's all sorts of suggestive things like where Abram Abraham is living is the place where Hagar fled to. Mm. The fact that uh, Isaac and Ishmael are reunited, it's it's not part of the scripture, but it's part of the Jewish commentary on the scripture, is that, and some of these commentaries are, are not systematically aligned with each other, but one of, one of the commentaries, one of the stories that, that they bring to the Bible is that uh, is that Abraham was, after the death of Sarah, was, was um, reunited with Hagar and reconciled. Well, um, uh, 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 an, an interesting thought. Uh, I, I was interested also in the fact that Genesis 25 and verse 5 says this, Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac, um, but while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Uh, so he didn't just look after Isaac, um, uh, and he looked after Ishmael, uh, he looked after even the sons of his concubines. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, I think that supports the theme that you've been pursuing of uh, uh, the blessing uh, not being exclusive. It's not that mm. God's playing favourites. Um, uh, he's looking after everybody. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Um, and I think the beauty of it is, too, that uh, that his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah when he died. And that's you were talking about the, mm, yeah. the their reunification. And, and I just think that's a lovely thing. I, I, I see here a blessing both for the natural results, if I can call it that, and a blessing for the miraculous. And so often we seek blessing in the miraculous, but there is wonderful blessing in the world working just the way it was meant to work mm. um, uh, with, without the intervention of the miraculous. That's not to deny it, uh, but God works uh, in both of those ways and we ought not deny them. Like, Well, that's that's like the chicken in the tree waiting to be sent to the ark, Ken. So, <laughs> sure it is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the, let's move towards some concluding comments. There are some ideas that we've... Uh, and we may have preempted future discussions by moving past Abraham, but there's enough here to keep us busy for many weeks anyway, so that's that's fine. Uh, what part of this covenant is is everlasting? Well, it seems that God has made an everlasting commitment to the descendants of of Abraham, and that plays out in ways that extend beyond the nation of Israel. Um, there is this idea that through the nation of Israel, all all nations would be blessed. That that phrase doesn't seem to appear in the other characters of the story, though they receive God's blessing. And though many of them are upheld as, as virtuous people, um, deserving of admiration. Uh, so uh, this idea that God would bless people through the nation of Israel, which we see fulfilled in Christ, uh, 
if we then tie that to this idea that God's blessings are given to us so that we then become agents of his blessing uh, is is then a compelling a compelling thought and it is one indeed that that Christ addresses quite often um, he says if you see people if people mistreat you don't don't be surprised because you're doing what I'm doing you're 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 me in the community and they're going to treat you the same way they treated me and he often says to the disciples you know a servant's not greater than its master and mm-hmm. statements along along this line that that his aim in providing a, a blessing to us is to be a light on the hill that's that's what we're talking about isn't it? it's the salt of the earth and the candle put put on the hill mm. i have one thought in closing uh, that i would encourage the readers the listeners to to maybe go and play with themselves in Genesis, there is a third covenant that Abraham makes. It's in Genesis 21, and it's not a covenant with God. It's a covenant with Abimelech, and it's over, it's to do with a well of disputed ownership. But the point that I want to make is that in Genesis 21, verses 26 and 27, So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. This is not cutting animals in half or sacrificing them as a burnt offering. This is giving them as a gift, as a, as a symbol, as a sign of the covenant. And the thought that I have is simply this. When Abraham is... <coughs> make... Say that again. Yeah. Oh, sorry. The thought that I have is simply this. When Abraham is making a covenant or God is making a covenant with Abraham, how does one give something to God? Abraham can give these sheep and, and animals to Abimelech, but... It's, it seems as if that's part of what sacrifice was about in the Old Testament. It was giving something to God in the only way they could tangibly see to do it, which was to kill the animal and burn it on an offering so that the smoke at least could ascend. I think that it's an interesting challenge for us to ponder, and we don't have time now to explore it. So, so listeners, what does it mean for you to give something to God? Mm. Locke, there's some very interesting passage about this one that I'd never heard about. What were the Israelites meant to do if they were meant to bring a, a tithe offering to the temple, but they lived too far from the temple? How, how, and they couldn't take it to the temple to be sacrificed. What, what were they to do with their tithe? Sacrifices. Right. That is a conundrum. I haven't, haven't They were to kill it. the animal and get the whole village together and have a party. Have a party. That was exactly it. <laughs> that That's was, what they were, they were to do with They it. were managed to, to eat it and enjoy it. Yep. I see. I see. Well, there you go. Even in Old Testament times, there were these sorts of scenarios where you had to ponder what it meant to give something to God. I suspect this is something we'll be coming back to later on in this series of lessons. Uh, But I I did want to just spend a bit of time, well, no, spend a moment um, looking at the universality of the covenant with Noah. Um, If I can call it, in a sense, the exclusivity. of the covenant with Abraham. And I know we've been talking about ways in which there were more than one covenant or there were more than one blessing at least. But there's the covenant that seems to go through the promise um, through Isaac. Um, uh, And that's this everlasting covenant. Uh, So it's an everlasting covenant. That is not necessarily consistent with another covenant. The fact that one is lasting is not inconsistent with uh, other covenants. So the fact that this covenant with Abraham is everlasting is not inconsistent with a universal covenant with Noah. In the same way, when we get to the New Testament, we see that there's a new covenant. Hmm. Now, that new covenant 
doesn't necessarily mean that the old covenant is no longer everlasting. Um, it's not inconsistent. It's a new covenant, uh, which is mediated in a different way, uh, but it's not an incon- not necessarily an inconsistent covenant. Now, there may be reasons why that's wrong, um, but I thought maybe that's something to keep in mind, to see that there are lots of ways that God makes promises with his people. And there is no, there is no limit. Um, this is something I've been pondering after looking very carefully at 17. There's no limit on the number of covenants God can make. Mm. There's no reason mm. why it has to be just three or just one or just two or however many you might think it to be. I, you know, I was just looking at, at 17 and thinking, is the covenant that God has just made with Abraham the same covenant as the one he talks about making with Isaac? Because he says later on, you will have a son named Isaac and I will make a covenant with him. And it's not immediately clear if we're talking about the same covenant because it doesn't have to be. God can make as many covenants as he wants. It's not as if he has a limited number of blessings that he has to... Well, and that's exactly the point that that Cam made excellently, was that with God, it's not an either-or proposition. He blesses everyone. Let let us then perhaps not presume too much in terms of our ability to pin God down to exactly what he's up to. Uh, That maybe God's working... Maybe there are many, many... I'm sure there are. I mean, let's hope there are. There are many ways that God must be working that we just have no idea about. And uh, though it's fun to have these discussions, if we can avoid the the tendency, all too prevalent, I think, when once you start getting excited by what has been revealed to us in the Bible, there's always a tendency to assume that that's everything that could be revealed and that mm. we've got the sum total. And uh, we're now the, you know, we've reached the top. Um, then uh, it's kind of exciting to to know that we've got got lots to more, uh, lots more to know, and uh, to look forward to you know new things that God can do. Well, perhaps we not, perhaps we ought not presume that, Cam, but perhaps we can assume this: that whatever it is that God is doing, and however He's doing it, and whether or not we understand it, He is working for good. Yeah, mm. yeah. That's a, good, a great place to end. Uh, any comments that any of our listeners have can be sent to us at the address sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. Uh, we're very glad to have people who, who enjoy listening to this podcast and we enjoy comments when they come. And uh, as always, feel free to share this podcast with, with anyone you would feel, uh, friend or enemy or, or acquaintance. And we hope that you'll join us next week as we go a bit further in, into this discussion and uh, find lots more juicy ideas.